that's sort of where like I start to get a little bit paranoid where I'm like, okay, but, like what's happening is everybody's like, not only am I optimistic about this now, everybody's optimistic about this. And therefore everybody's assuming a bunch of stuff is going to happen over two years. That's actually going to take like five or six years. And that starts to worry me a little bit because then that, that means like the short. Okay. I mean, look, you're, you're, you're saying that this worries you. You're saying that you're paranoid, but you're also like mega long, all of these things. <laughs> so in what sense, in what sense are you? Well, that paranoid? <laughs> Hey everyone, if you have been listening to Empire, you know that Santi and I are fed up with unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds that make the on-chain experience basically unusable. So the Arbitrum team reached out and they showed us the platform. They showed us what you can do on Arbitrum. Whatever you're doing, you can experience frictionless transactions at lightning speed on Arbitrum. So head over to portal.arbitrum.io and check it out. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into today's episode, I'm excited to share Empire's first ever security partner. Harpy is the best tool to prevent your wallet from theft in real time. Harpy is not just a security solution. They are a peace of mind solution. But don't just take our word for it. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. To learn more about Harpy, click the link in the show notes or visit at harpy.io forward slash empire. What's up, everyone? Before we jump into the episode, little plug for Digital Asset Summit coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Tickets are pacing so far ahead of schedule that we had to decrease the discount code. So instead of Empire 20, it is now Empire 10. Head over to the website, Digital Asset Summit, Das London, March 18th to 20th. Use code Empire 10 and get 10% off your ticket. See you in London. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Empire. We have uh, our, our our two favorite guests on the show. We've got uh, Hasib and Avichal. We've got uh, four guys in four different time zones here. So, um, yeah, welcome back to the show, guys. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Hasib, you going to bring the energy? I am going to try my best. It is early morning here in Singapore, but, you know, whenever whenever I'm here with Avichal, we always have something <laughs> to fight about, so I think it'll make it work. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm excited for some beef here. I think... Uh, all right, so last time we you, I had you guys on, um, we were talking like kind of mental models for investing in crypto. It was about maybe seven or eight months ago, heart of the bear market, and you guys basically laid out your kind of bull case for why you guys were excited, still excited, and what, what I would say is the heart of the bear. And now I think consensus is that we're, we're back on, maybe beginning of the bull. So I think maybe that's the best place to start. Hasib, if you could maybe kick us off, and then Avich, I'll ask the same question for you. Like, what is your framework today? for where we're at in this cycle? So, you know, bull market, bear market is, is fairly difficult to quantify in crypto. The reality is that if you look at the last year, like 2023, I think the lived experience of most people in crypto is that 2023 was this year of contrition. It was a pretty difficult year. Like things were pretty slow and icy and not a lot of deals getting done. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of really challenging moments with, you know, the SEC coming after the industry, a lot of regulatory action. Uh, the reality was that if you actually just go look at the chart of crypto market cap over 2023, we were up every single quarter. Basically, things if you if you just look at the line, it just it basically is just up into the right, almost uninterrupted for all of last year. Now, basically, up, up until Q4, everyone was calling it a bear market, and I think the way in which they, in their mind, it was a bear market was just the vibe was kind of bear markety, and I think the totality of Hey, we just we're f still feeling the FTX overhang. We're we're big getting put on public trial. There's a lot of negative energy and attention on crypto, and that feels bear markety. And there's not as much retail engagement, right? And that I think that's how people think about what it means to be in a bear market, as opposed to what a price is doing. Um, 
Q4 really feels like when the sentiment shifted. Q4 was when you saw, you know, the, the crazy Solana run-up, uh, Ordinal's activity, all the retail engagements start to come back, price actions start to come back. And then basically Q1, of course, the Bitcoin ETF has, has driven a lot of the story for uh, January so far. Um, so my, my sense of where we are in the cycle, like you said, we're, we're in a bull market now. I mean, if, if price isn't the indication, the retail engagement and the, the, the positive sentiment that you're seeing from retail, institutional investors, exchange volumes, flows, all those things are there now. So it's hard to argue that we're not in a bull market. Um, I think the question is, where are we in that bull cycle? And I think most people, I, I more or less agree with the consensus. I think last year, I was probably a little bit more out of consensus. Now everyone pretty much agrees this year is going to be a good year. There's a lot of positive catalysts. It's hard to really even see uh, what there is to be worried about because it looks like all the regulatory risks that we were scared of are really getting pushed back and minimized by just how much energy and consensus is being built from the institutional side and even the legal and regulatory side around crypto. So it feels like a really good year. Avijal, maybe I, I would assume you agree with Haseeb, so I'll throw a slightly different question to you, which is if we are, let's assume we are, okay, back in this bull market, I agree with Haseeb, we probably started at some point in 2023 and now it's like kind of consensus that we're back. How do you position as, as a fund for being back mm. on? Uh, I think you just get more paranoid. Like I think what's going to happen, like the best time to invest is when it looks like a bear market and everybody's scared and the founders that are coming in have some true conviction and they, you know, it's like, Hey, I've been doing a PhD for five years and, and I want to productionize my research. Like those are the best people to be investing in. Um, the opportunists tend to come out when, when it's clearly a bull market. I don't think we're in like peak bull yet. And so you, you start have to, you know, having to have your sort of, you know, spidey sense going a little bit more and like making sure people are here for the right reasons, uh, not to, not to sort of milk it. And, you know, you don't want to accidentally end up in the next FTX. Um, uh, so, you know, yeah, I think you just have to be a little bit more cautious, actually. Um, I will, I will add, I think, you know, it's when everybody is on the same page that this is definitely a bull market that I also think the market has a tendency to inflict pain. So I, I, while I agree that we're probably in a really positive sentiment, and I think we're probably going to be in a good spot at the end of the year, both in terms of, you know, market and also just building and shipping. It's just so much backlog of great stuff that's going to ship over the next three, six, nine months, um, which are really positive catalysts. Um, I also think that it's entirely possible that we're just over our skis a little bit. Like the sentiment is too good relative to what's actually happened. Um, mm. You know, I, like I think that the ETF is a good example here. It's like I think a lot of people's expectations is that the way that the first couple of days here have gone, the first week, which has got a couple billion dollars in, that that's just going to scale lin linearly, right? It's just going to be now every week another billion dollars comes in. And so, you know, we should, you know, we should just be at $50 billion pretty soon. And that's, that's not really how these flows are going to work, I think. And so I think a lot of the sentiment when it gets too positive, um, people get over their skis a little bit and it, then it needs to sort of pull back. And um, that, that's, that's my guess for kind of where we are right now, actually, which is, which is pretty typical. If you look at prior cycles and stuff, like in this part of the pre-having cycle, like it's, it's very typical for people to get over their skis for some reason. Uh, and then it pulls back. So one of the things, uh, both of you traffic in private and public markets, uh, perhaps Haseeb, you guys more so on the public side, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, how do you think about like going back to what you said, Haseeb, of the, the indicators you're paying attention to as it relates to where we are in the cycle? And I appreciate you guys invest through multiple cycles, not just like a year horizon, but um, from a relative allocation of dollars, 
certainly has felt that private rounds have really ratcheted up. You're back to like the valuations are, are back up. The size of the rounds are increasing. The type of founders that are coming to the space are not just like the true crypto natives. How do you think about the relative opportunity cost of taking more duration of liquidity risk versus putting it in the public markets? Um, it's also been a rally of have and have nots. Like Solana has gone up a ton. Ethereum, not so much, but still prices are down 50, 60% from the highs. So general question to both of you, how you think about like allocating dollars in this current environment? Uh, no, it's, it's the right question to ask. Um, you know, not all of our funds have the ability to just go buy publics and say, okay, well, you know, I like ETH here versus uh, doing a private round. You do need to pick your spots in a situation like this where uh, you're right, there is a lot of catch up in the private market valuations, which had been lagging publics. I think if you look at like Q4 was probably the best time to be doing privates just because privates had not caught up yet with publics. Now they've kind of raced back into line. And so I think, you know, we're probably past the period where you're still going to be getting discounts going into the private markets. Um, that being said, like uh, if, you, if you do take the view that we're early into this cycle, and I think it, it seems pretty clear to me that we are, um, one of the indicators I look at is, how much is retail really engaged? We've seen a huge amount of institutional interest, right? The, the ETF has obviously driven a lot of institutional eyeballs and a lot of buying from folks who previously didn't have access to the space or just had too many hurdles to actually uh, get direct exposure. But if you look at, um, you know, the, the barometer I like to use within the US is looking at uh, Coinbase. So where is the Coinbase app on the App Store? Right now, Coinbase app, last I checked, ranks 30th for finance. In the finance category, it ranks 30th, which means like it, we, we, are, we are not anywhere right now. This is not like if you, if you go drive in an Uber, if you go see your barber, are they talking to you about tokens and you know, what, what coins to buy? No, at least not, not my experience. So to me, I think we're, we're very, very early into retail really paying attention and getting engaged. Now, that's not to say they, they will anytime soon. It could be a year, two years. Who knows? Maybe the last retail cycle is over. I kind of doubt that. But the, the, you know, it's something you have to take into account as a possibility. But the, the reality is that this is so far mostly institution-driven, mostly kind of smart money-driven uh, up till now. And I think once you start to see the macro environment shift and once you start to see risk appetite really start to turn back on over the next year or two, that's when I think you're going to see a more broad-based participation in crypto. Even the meme coin activity, inscriptions, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that we're seeing around this huge engagement of meme coins, especially on you know, platforms like Solana – in absolute numbers, it's still pretty small, right? If you look at daily actives on Solana, it's not, we're not looking at, you know, 5 million people who are, who are buying this stuff. Um, and if you look at that compared to what's happening on centralized exchanges, it's still a far cry from what we saw in 2021, 2022. Which, which I think speaks a little bit to this idea of, um, you know, where, where is sentiment relative to the underlying right? Fundamentals, like who's actually using this stuff and how much real utility is there and so on. And, and I think this is part of what creates the cycles in crypto is that the sentiment just gets so out of, out of whack where we actually, with where we actually are. And everybody that has been paying attention is so excited about something like the ETF happening. It took so long that I, I, I just, I worry a little bit that we're, we're over our skis right now in terms of sentiment relative to like actual progress. I guess I'd push back there. When have, so I think what you're saying there is sentiment, it's like a ratio of sentiment to fundamentals, basically. But yeah. if you looked at the last cycle, fundamentals didn't matter in the slightest, right? You have something like, I don't know, or even if you look right now, like Maker is spitting off 
I don't know, what did Maker do last year? 100 million in revenue or something. Great fundamentals. Hundreds, yeah, hundreds, right? Co coin is not going up though. So, um, Avitral, how do you think about like whether or not the best investments this Maybe. cycle will come from fundamentals? Well, I mean, here's here's a question, right? If you look at Maker's a great example because you might be able to look at the cash flow. I mean, yeah. the the fully diluted valuation of Maker right now is 2.1 billion. So if you had a company that was making 100 million in revenue, not like net profit out to shareholders, would it be worth two billion dollars today? I would argue it wouldn't be actually. Um, now the reasons I think you could not walk in the traditional through, public markets. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, so so to me that actually suggests that, like, that that there's some other reason that people are willing to value it as such, and and I have my theories on why. Um, you know, one one could be that that there's a there's a positive sentiment baked in. People are like, this is going to do so much more revenue in the future, and so the sort of you know growth rate that they're baking in could be that this thing's going to do a billion really soon because that's how crypto works. Another could be that, which is one thing I hold is like it's a, it's a longer conversation, but I think there's an argument to be made that network values for token networks will always have an implicit PE ratio that's much higher than public equities. And it's a side effect of who's participating in the markets, but where, you know, if you have a bunch of people in Southeast Asia and Nigeria and West Africa and Latin America, and in these places, you're, you're losing eight or 10% per year to the dollar. I mean, that's, that's like Zerp on steroids, right? You thought like zero interest rates were bad, where there's just a bunch of money. Like what happens if your money's losing eight or 10% a year? Like you need to get it out. Like you need to get it into something. Right. And so the way that that manifests in a market then is essentially really, really high PE ratios. And so that could be what's happening. But but I would argue, actually, like you talk about, like um, a, a scarcity premium that will continue to exist as long as people don't have easy access to traditional capital markets in the U.S. Like buying correct. Tesla, and Google, Easter. Correct. Yeah, and and so like one one way like it manifests in the public markets on the U.S. side is like you get these crazy multiples on a Tesla or a Facebook or an Amazon because what you have is a cohort of people that are baking a really really high growth rate into the future projection of what this company or this entity this network can do that could create a really high multiple. So 100 million from Maker could result in a 2.1 billion dollar network value. Or the other theory I have is that it's a bunch of people all over the world who don't really have access to the U.S. financial markets and don't have access to any good financial products. They don't even have access to dollars. And now all of a sudden they have an entity that is producing cash flow at $100 million, right? So there's any cash flow coming off of this thing in U.S. dollar terms is better than them losing 10% in you know, mm. Argentinian pesos or 20% or a year in Naira or whatever you know, their base currency is. And so their willingness to pay a very high, effectively, PE for that cash flow is what then drives up these ratios. Um, but, but in either case, right, like I think that's relative to the other opportunities that you might have, the sentiment is so far outstripped what you could do with that cash. Like if, you, if you're not a crypto fund, let's say, let's say you're a family office or you're just a private investor, do you want to pay those kinds of multiples for that cash flow? And I, I would argue you don't unless you have a lot of positive sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. So unless you sort of believe that, that there's going to be a lot of growth here, it's hard to justify those multiples, um, which is where I think the sentiment is sort of manifest. So I, like I, I look at those numbers actually, and I I don't I look at that somewhat negatively. Like I know you're, you're sort of saying that's like a a positive indication. I sort of look at that as proof that sentiment has outstripped fundamentals. I don't know if that's an indication that sentiment has outstripped fundamentals so much as that uh, you know if you look at let's let's look at Maker specifically. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of Maker, and I should disclose it that we're, we're long Maker. Um, I think the so so for one, you know, kind of actually a point in favor of Avichal. Uh, the, the forward revenue that you're looking at is probably overstated because of the fact that we know that interest rates are likely to come down. Yep. So it's likely actually that the, the true, the correct adjusted forward PE is going to be lower than what you're seeing on token terminal, for example. Um, that being said, I think what people are baking in when they're looking at Maker is the fact that I don't know anybody who's not bullish on this RWA story. 
in the sense that uh, it's very, very clear that stablecoin supply right now, you know, it's kind of been stuck at about 130 billion, 130, 140 for the last, call it like year and a half. Um, and it's very clear, like this, this, this is kind of a very temporary stopping point, uh, especially as interest rates come down, there's going to be more and more cash that's find, find its way on chain. And it's going to get tokenized and stabilized, especially if we get some kind of stablecoin regulation passed. That's going to make it easier for people to get more comfortable interacting with stablecoins um, within within the U.S. Much less internationally. I, I don't think I, I don't think there's any reason to think that this is not going to continue as a trend. Um, it's basically, if you look over the last five years, it went from what something like 800 million circulating in 2018 to now yeah. being like 140 billion. That's an insane uh, growth rate, and. I, I think we had a temporary stopping point during a, a pretty horrible bear market and historically high interest rates. We're, we're moving away from that pretty rapidly. And I expect stablecoin supply to, to start expanding now that we're kind of getting back into a much healthier environment. Uh, and I think Maker's going to be a beneficiary for that. So I think there are good reasons to think like, hey, there's some positive catalysts here. And Maker has a lot of downside protection compared to a lot of other things that you can be investing into that are a lot more ripe for disruption. Um, Maker at this point is is one of the lindiest things in DeFi. Um, people argue that it's boring. It doesn't really capture a lot of beta. You know, sometimes uh, the rest of the market's moving and makers just kind of sitting there, standing in the middle of traffic, kind of unfazed by all the other excitement that's going on. Um, but I think there's uh, there, there are very few things you can invest into that actually really represent the RWA narrative and actually have real cash flow denominated exposures to what's happening with respect to that market. Uh, makers kind of the biggest game in town in that regard, and I think it's a it's a it's a real force. So I, I should also, uh, two thoughts. One, none of this is financial advice, obviously, from from any of us. And you should not listen to random people on the internet, anybody that's listening right now. Uh, so uh, second, second, I should also disclose, we're also a log maker. We also have, you know, we also own maker. Uh, but I, I think what you're saying actually uh, kind of proves my point, right? Which is like, the reason to invest is not because relative to today's cash flows, the, the price that you're paying is a great price. It's that there's this reason to believe that in the future, it's going to do really, really well, which requires a sort of set of assumptions about tokenization, about real world assets, about things moving on chain, about this being the beneficiary of all of those trends. Um, and hence, in, in five years or 10 years, some, some long period of time, that, that uh, you, know, you might have a good investment here um, as, as a venture fund, right? And so, but, but to believe all of those things, I think you have to have extremely positive sentiment. Like if you didn't, if you weren't like extremely optimistic about the future here, about these, about these trends, then you just wouldn't make those investments, which kind of gets back at this point that like fundamentally it's, it's like in the short term is sentiment driven, not fundamentals driven. And, and that has a tendency to kind of get over its skis. And, and when that happens, we got to be really, then as, a, as an investor, you got to get really careful because then, then the question you're asking is like, am I being too optimistic about how quickly these things will happen? Because ten, the tendency, especially for for investor types or technology types or founders is to underestimate how long it will take for things to happen. Like you have a tendency to be too early rather than too late. Um, right. And so that, that's sort of where like I start to get a little bit paranoid where I'm like, okay, but like what's happening is everybody's like, not only am I optimistic about this now, everybody's optimistic about this. And therefore everybody's assuming a bunch of stuff is going to happen over two years. That's actually going to take like five or six years. And that starts to worry me a little bit because then that, that means like the short term. Okay. I mean, look, you're, you're, you're saying that this worries you. You're saying that you're paranoid, but you're also like mega long, all of these things. So <laughs> in what sense, in what sense are you well, that paranoid? Well, no, but you got to keep because, dancing while the music's on. Well, no, it's, it's because it, it goes back to, I think the thing that Santi was talking about, which I, I, I often stay, which is like people overestimate what's going to happen in two years, but they underestimate what's going to happen in 10 years. Um, and, and so if you have like a seven to 10 year time horizon, then, 
then it, you, you can sort of tolerate that volatility in the short term. Um, but I think you have to sort of, to the investment question, then you have to be a little bit careful about like, are you, are you overpaying in the short term, right? Like, are you, are you actually paying, you know, like there's, there's people out there that bought ETH at 1500 and they saw it go up a bunch and then it came down a bunch and then it came back you know, like how much money have they made on their like $1,500 ETH as of, as of today or like at the end of you know, Q1 or Q2, right? It's been kind of crazy. So, so there is an argument, I think too, that even if you think ETH is worth a lot of money in, in 10 years and who knows if it is, that being disciplined about the point at which you decide to make that entry based on where you think the, the market cycles are and so on, like you can, you can sort of factor that into your decision making. Mm. One of the things uh, I want to get your thoughts on, Avicho, obviously you guys put up and have produced for a number of years now this developer report, which I think is one of the most important reports and pieces of information that I look at to make investment decisions. Um, I would love to transition talking about like Solana versus the EVM centric mindset. I mean, mm. I think most yeah. VCs are way overexposed to Ethereum. Uh, and have been caught off sides uh, with Solana. Um, yeah. I'm curious how you guys think about that, the Ethereum roadmap and your conviction on that working versus something clearly that we've seen consumer behavior in Solana and yeah. you can actually see a low fee environment. So we'd love to get your thoughts on, on that. And I think it touches on modularity and a bunch of other things that are hot now. Yeah. Uh, another disclosure, we also have a lot of Solana. Uh, and so you know, don't listen to me about anything. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, you know, I think... Uh, on the report, there, there's a couple of sort of takeaways, I think, for me. Um, one is that an increasing number of developers are developing across multiple chains. And so I, I have to go back and look at the number. I want to say it's like 30% of devs uh, are now writing code that will hit ultimately will will sort of straddle up, you know, more than two chains, um, which is pretty amazing. Um, and, you know, when you zoom into that, what's really interesting, though, is that... Um, 80% of devs or so, I'd have to go back and look at the number. I want to say it's like 70, 75, 80%, somewhere in that zone, are actually writing code for at least one EVM chain. And so while you are seeing people write for more than one chain, what you are seeing simultaneously is a network effect around the EVM um, and, and sort of convergence there. Um, not that dissimilar, I think a, a common analog that people will make is JavaScript, which is the EVM is busted in all sorts of ways, but these things tend to have a path dependency. So the internet runs on JavaScript, despite all of the challenges of JavaScript. Um, and, and that's kind of maybe where we are with EVM. It's like maybe maybe these ecosystems will just have to use EVM in some form. Um, and that, that has a real network effect. At the same time, what you see is that these ecosystems like Solana that are not EVM, um, tend to have the most dedicated developers. Like they have the developers that are only writing for those ecosystems. And I think that's a really interesting sort of go-to-market strategy, right, for an ecosystem to essentially say, we are, we're going to not have devs that then later take their code and deploy it somewhere else. We're going to pick devs that only write for our ecosystem. And yes, that's a harder place to start, but over time that might be a higher retention strategy. So for example, there's, there are these really great um, flow diagrams that we looked at where we actually looked at the code that's deployed on chain, and where does that logic first show up? And so you can fingerprint that, and you can kind of look at the flow of code across chains. Um, it's, in, it's, a, it's in the back of, of the deck. They're beautiful diagrams. They're like, I want to turn them into like prints or NFTs or something. But what you see is that actually most of the code that's on ETH originated on ETH, but there is something, you know, like 10, 20% of code that originated on BNB or originated on Polygon. Um, and actually like 80% of the code that's on uh, BNB came from Ethereum. So you're seeing sort of this like cross-pollination, right? But but in effect, what that means is that there's a lot of people writing code in, in the BNB ecosystem, almost like a testnet for ETH, right? What they're doing is like taking some code, putting it over there, writing it, and then bringing it over to ETH later. 
which is kind of fascinating that they're doing that. So it's not just ETH code being exported, it's other people writing code and bringing it back to ETH. But you don't see that with Solana. It's not like people are writing code in the Solana ecosystem and then porting it over to ETH after they figured out if it works um, or vice versa, right? And that, that actually over time is, is like an interesting advantage. Um, and so we tend to think these things are not going to be winner take all. There's going to be some sort of power law. Um, and if you think that the biggest winners are worth a lot of money, then, then even the second and third and fourth place winners could, could do quite well and have their own ecosystems. And there's a lot of precedent for this, right? If you look at, um, take something like social networking, which I think people think of as like a pure network effect kind of a business. Yes, you have Facebook, but at scale, you also got Snap. You also got TikTok. Uh, you also have YouTube. And then you also have regional networks, right? You have Talk in Asia, um, right? You have Vicontacte in, in Russia. And so at scale, you can actually have networks that are regional or bounded by communities um, that, that can also be really successful. So I, I, I tend to think that we're going to actually probably have way more alt L1s than most people would conceptualize today because of, of sort of the way these network effects will work over time. Hasib, how do you think about that? Um, it's a very interesting question. It's one that, you know, we've had to grapple with a lot. So, uh, you know, we own some soul. I, I, it sounds like maybe we own less soul than <laughs> he was. He had a big smile when he was talking about how much soul he owned. But you, um, but you own more makers, so I, we can count on that. Yeah. We do. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, okay, that, that may be maybe the indication of who owns what on a relative basis is how uh, the, the relative we're sli- claiming yeah, we owned it. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, what's my look? My view on Solana is that uh, I think we we may have crossed the period where you can start a new programming environment for your own blockchain. Uh, I think we there may have been a critical period basically around like 2018 to 2021 where there was enough, like the, the space was inchoate enough that you could start from scratch and still be competitive in terms of development environment, auditing firms, hiring, all this stuff that has now increasingly solidified around a very small number of ecosystems. Uh, it feels like basically there's EVM, which is you know by far the dominant uh, paradigm for programming, you know, something nine out of the top 10 chains by TVL and by users are EVM based. So vast majority of it is EVM if you draw the pie chart. Um, second is SVM, which is Solana's virtual machine. Uh, then you have Wasm and then you have Move. And after that, it's just basically non-existent. Now there are other, there are other programming paradigms that people have put together, um, but they have basically a rounding error of adoption. And I think we're at the point now where if you start a new one, it may have been true for Solana in 2019, but it's not true anymore today. If you start a new programming paradigm, nobody will join you. The costs are too high. Only an idiot would uh, constrain themselves if starting a new company, starting a new paradigm, hiring a bunch of uh, engineers, trying to get you know super expensive audits for some programming paradigm nobody knows about, hoping there are no bugs in the runtime. Like the, the, the enormous amount of commitment that someone would have to make. Yeah. to betting that your new L1 paradigm is going to work against everything else that's out there, uh, it's just too late. So my sense is that um, we're in the situation now where we've got sort of the, the Android, which is EVM, which, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, this is maybe a bad analogy because uh, there, there's some uh, other connotations between Android and, and iOS. But um, we sort of have the Android, which is, uh, which is EVM, which is basically everywhere and the vast majority of people on earth are using EVMs. Uh, then you've got Solana, which is kind of this higher end, a super high performance thing, but it's there's only one chain. There's only one home for it. Maybe there will be other roll-ups or something that are going to use the SVM, but right now it really kind of seems like Solana is the only game in town. And if you're building on Solana, you're you're kind of pot committed. And that's what you see from a lot of the Solana builders is that obviously there's been a lot of churn through the bear market of people who ended up dropping out. But there there was also no there was no new people 
who came into Solana and started building over the last you know year and a half, right? Since the collapse of FTX, nobody in their right mind started building on Solana. Now you're starting to see people come back and some new renewed interest, seeing the retail engagement, seeing the price action, seeing the the support and the ecosystem energy. Um, but basically, it's like you know if you look at the projects that are all successful in Solana, they're all people who started during the FTX era and were willing to stick it out through the Valley of Darkness, and that that's kind of what. Uh, built the strength of that ecosystem was the, the 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 belief and the confidence that people had during a time when no one else believed in them. So they they really kind of had their hero's journey in forging that that collective identity for Solana. Uh, and I give a I give a lot of credit to them for having for having uh, born through that. Uh, but if you look at a lot of the other ecosystems that are trying to play for that spot that Solana is playing for. Um, the reality is that it's it's really really hard for there to be multiple contenders for the non EVM chain. I really think that right now, if you look at you know near, you look at the the move chains, and we're investors in many of them. Um, Solana is really pulling a lot of the air out of the room, and it seems to me at equilibrium there's going to be probably one main non EVM chain that sucks up a lot of the non EVM use cases, and everybody right now is fighting for that spot now. To be clear, Solana is the front runner right now, but it's far from over, right? Very few of the non-EVMs really have that much going on in absolute terms. Uh, even even Solana right now, most of what's happening on Solana is people trading meme coins. You know, there's some there's some DeFi stuff that's like starting to work. There's obviously a lot of airdrop farming. Um, there's some there's a lot of infrastructure that people are excited about, like Gito and whatnot. But in terms of real mass market applications, most of what's happening right now is happening on EVMs whether it's uh, Binance Smart Chain or Polygon or Ethereum Mainnet or, or you know, some of these other platforms. Um, and so I think the race is still very young. Price action, Solana has raced ahead and there's a lot of consensus that's been built around them, but there's a lot of game left to be played. And so I think if you, if you draw the line out over five years, I think there's still a lot of room for people to uh, jockey for that position to be that mm. dominant non-Ethereum uh, L1. So, Hasib, do you think the market structure is going to be like 80-20? Like it's basically EVM and one other big one, and then everything else is ultimately a rounding error? Or do you think it's it's more power law, like uh, 70? Basically, basically. Interesting. I, I, think, well, I think it is going to be 80-20-ish yeah. uh, with EVMs and then like the non-EVM chain. Um, and, and the non-EVM chain, it, it could even be bigger, right? It could even be like 30, 30% or something. But um, I, I, think, I, I think of it actually a lot like operating systems. So if you think in terms of operating systems, I think in a way you can you can analogize the EVM to like Linux, right? And Linux is uh, at this point the basis for the vast majority of computing. You know, uh, Mac OS is based on the Unix uh, uh, Unix kernel, and there's just the, uh, almost everything is just compatible with this thing because it's just the easiest thing for everybody to coordinate on. Uh, it's not high performance. It's not really designed to go fast or be good. It's just designed to be usable, and everyone kind of knows how to use it. Um, so the paradigm is recognizable. Then you have now, if you're doing robotics, if you're if you're you know doing uh, uh, hardware for a car or for something that really requires high performance, you will not use Linux. You will use some kind of real-time operating system, and a real-time operating system it, it strips out all the nice affordances, all the the common paradigms everyone knows about user space and kernel space and all the security guarantees and all this other shit because it just needs to be really fast. You cannot have a robot uh, or a drone get stuck in you know, some garbage collecting, like, oh, we're sorry for switching from this kernel space to that kernel space and blah, blah, blah. Um, you need it to be super, super high performance. In the process of that, you lose a lot of affordances. It's not very nice to develop for a real-time operating system, but it's the only way to get super high performance. There's a class of applications that are going to want this. 
it's not every application. In fact, the majority of the stuff that people seem to use crypto for, um, they don't really need 400 millisecond uh, latency, right? One, two seconds is, is fine. You know, if you're paying somebody, you know, one or two seconds is fine. It's not really that big of a deal. If you're trying to do NASDAQ on the blockchain, yeah, one, two seconds is not going to cut it. So there's a, uh, I think there are use cases just like there are with respect to operating systems that require a very different set of uh, performance guarantees for which people are willing to eat the glass and take the trade-off. Uh, that's, I think, what in the long run this this whole system is going to bifurcate into. That's my thesis. But why do you think it's operating systems and not programming languages or databases? Like, why well, is programming that languages? And, uh, I think because you know, with, with programming languages, it's not. I mean, you can you can you can make the same analogy. It's just a little more tortured because of the fact that programming languages don't divide as neatly across use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times, like, you know, someone who's doing payments, you can do payments in Python, you can do payments well, in C++. S- sort of. I mean, like, you don't want to render a web page in, like, C, right? Like, I mean... I mean, web pages are rendered in, you know, in HTML, right? which is written in... So, Hasib, you, well, yeah, like, you think L1s will divide across use cases? So you think there'll be use cases that are basically strictly, like, only, like, only possible on Solana, basically, and then there's use cases on on, on the EVM, essentially? I think at equilibrium, you're going to see the vast majority of value. If you think of it value-weighted, not just, you know, are people trading NFTs on Solana? Of course they are. Sure, sure. Are people trading NFTs on everything? Yes, more or less they're trading NFTs on anything they can, get, <laughs> they can trade them on. But uh, it's very clear, like, you don't need everything that Solana has built to trade NFTs, right? It, it's obviously overkill for trading NFTs. You can trade NFTs on fucking anything. I, I, um, I did, NFTs wait. don't require high frequency. Uh... I, I I disagree. I mean, like the history of the internet would would suggest that is, I mean, computing would inter- suggest that that's not true. Like this is, this this is sort of reminds me of the like Bill Gates, who needs more than what is it, sixty four k of RAM or whatever his quote was, or two hundred fifty six k of RAM. It feel it feels like actually the history of computing is always like the more infrastructure you throw at it, the more new use cases somebody figures out, and hence it sucks up all the infrastructure. Like yeah, you might like you. you I guess you might be. I might grant you, like, it's not clear to me if you need, like, a true real-time operating system to trade NFTs, but as a side effect of there being a bunch of people who have seen a wealth effect on something like Solana, who then go and trade NFTs, you now have, like, saturate the network, and therefore you have to, like, figure out how to get more throughput, and then somebody comes up, and then somebody gets some new use case, and therefore the new use case saturates the network, Mm -hmm. so you you enter this, like, flywheel, right? So Yeah, so I completely agree with you with respect to saturation, right? So that's why I'm grouping the the, the EVMs as, like, a big blob, right? Yeah. It's clear the vision for how EVM scale is not going to be, we have Solana and then we have the big EVM, right? I, I, I don't think, you know, even, even with something like Monad, which yeah. is a you know, parallel EVM implementation that I'm very excited about, uh, it's, it's not going to be able to absorb every unit of demand that people have for, for interacting with EVM chains. It's more that I believe over time, there's going to be more and more um, opacity to the end user of where their money is going and on what chain it's being settled. And at the end of the day, right now, we are in the age of you are literally typing into your browser uh, what protocol you want to use. Like, fetch this using HTTP, fetch this using FTP, fetch this using Go, you know, whatever, like a Gopher, you know, the, the very, very old uh, internet client. And that's where we are right now in, in crypto, where human beings are manually specifying these things and dealing, you know, the reality is that, like, why is it that you as a human being are trying to figure out how to bridge across a protocol or like where your <laughs> USDC is or all this stuff. Like yeah. it, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't require anywhere near your level of IQ to do this. Right. Argu- but arguably it requires right a lot now more you're IQ, handling. man. 
I'm always paranoid that I'm like, <laughs> like yeah, that's like, true. That's true. Like, the the problem is actually the opposite. It's like too, it's, there's too hard. Like, yes. Gonna, no matter how smart you are, the paranoia does not go away. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like, this feels uh, like it should really be machine led. Yeah, like yeah. this should not be human beings doing this, yeah. but it is right now. All of this is completely transparent to us as users of all the nitty gritty details of how money is moving around, but people are doing it. They're moving the money around, but in this very mechanical way, that what is it, what I'm wondering is going to go away. Wouldn't that then suggest that the the percentage that you think the EBM share is, 80, 80% let's call it, is actually going to be materially lower? Yeah. If, if there's chain abstraction, you know, right now you've seen, let's consider the number of users in crypto, whatever you're going to slice it, it is a microcosm. It is beta, We're all beta testers. Chain loyalty is not going to be a thing. People don't have bag bias when they're coming fresh into crypto. The next 100 million people will care, not even care about any of these chains we're talking about. They will care about, am I able to do stuff faster, better, cheaper, which is a threshold by which people start using the stuff. And so when you think about, I agree with you, you don't need a Ferrari like Solana to trade an NFT or send a payment, but you do care. And I think Solana may have a greater shot at attracting attention. And if you're already doing one thing in Solana, then you may you're probably going to end up doing most of your things like by virtue of just aggregation theory. I don't know if you would agree with that. And so like my thesis is why wouldn't Solana eat up way more into the EVM share today? Cause you're, you're, you're seeing the, like DeFi has been challenged. Like the, 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 the number of like when fees are incredibly low, it really has unlocked like this nonlinear consumer behavior already. So wouldn't that dictate that Solana could really become that, like the inverse, actually, eighty twenty. Well, here, here's what I'd say. Uh, so, w- when you actually have, I mean, this goes back to the the very age old argument about horizontal scaling versus vertical scaling, right? And and Solana is basically kind of max long vertical scaling. Is if we just you know scale the fuck out of this thing, we'd be giant beefy boxes. The history of technology tells us eventually you have to go horizontal, right? Doesn't matter how big you go vertical. Eventually, if you want to serve world scale, you always have to go horizontal. Eventually, Facebook learned that, Google learned that. Everybody eventually learns you have to go. Even Stack Overflow, which is the the poster child for oh, we were all running this on one server, and you know, scaling is for losers. Uh, Now they have two servers, right? So like, (laughs) eventually you give up and you realize if you want to be internet scale, you have to go horizontal, right? And I think Solana recognizes this that yes, we can scale the shit out of this relative to every other L1, but that does not mean there's infinite capacity for having a decentralized network of big beefy servers that can run all the compute that people want to on it. Eventually, it will also get saturated, just like everything will get saturated because blockchains are physically bound. <clears throat> that is the way it works. And so, so, so let, let's take that as a starting point, that every network is physically bound. Um, everybody's eventually gonna have to go horizontal. If, if we believe that, hey, there is actually a mass market use case for this shit. Um, in, in that story where you are going massively horizontal, if you look at Facebook, right? So Facebook, how did they go massively horizontal? The first thing they did is they basically just did MySQL. Just lots and lots of MySQL databases all talking to each other, just like basically an off-the-shelf database. Just scale. I mean, eventually they did Cassandra and all this other fancy stuff that was like really, really specialized. But the easiest thing to do is to just get the thing that's easiest to use, scale it out horizontally, and effectively load balance between them, right? The, the thing right now with Solana, and look, I give a lot of credit to Solana. I think it's a very, very interesting and dynamic ecosystem. The reality is that Solana does not have anywhere near the robustness of tooling and the safety that the EVM has, right? It's, it's way better on performance. Performance, it's like 11 out of 10. Um, on security, 
the reality is that we have, I don't think we've even seen a major Solana hack yet. Why have we not seen a major Solana hack? That seems really weird given that everybody in Solana is writing in Rust. They're writing in a super low level, unsafe language. They, you, you, all this stuff, like how many auditors are there for Solana? Like three? You know, there's, there, there's not that many. Um, there's not the same level of open source uh, battle-tested contracts. We don't have the same uh, ecosystem of bug bounties and, uh, you know, people who've been, uh, uh, what is it, what's it called? Uh, 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 CTFs, you know, like yeah. we, we don't have that same ecosystem of security around Solana. Even the, even the protocol itself, right? Uh, the protocol itself has never found a major bug. There's been there's been things that fell over because of uh, uh, because of uh, demand, right? Like basically the, the RPCs got hit, or there was just too much load, and it sort of fell over because of load. But if you if you remember, EVMs have been broken many times, and the EVM has existed for like seven years, and there's still bugs in the major EVM clients. Right? We just had uh, what was it? it was Besu it was a little while back, and then we had Nethermind, which had a major bug in it as well. Um, almost certainly the Solana, Solana client has bugs in it. There's no fucking way that a code base writing something as complex as Solana does not have bugs. And the question is, why haven't we seen any? My well, theory of why we haven't seen anything happen yet is because most of this stuff is not open source and uh, it's just so complicated. So I would challenge that because that was my impression too. Two weeks ago, I always felt like most of the projects were closed source. And there's a stat now. I think like the overwhelming majority of Solana projects are open source. So, this, this has is changed drastically. I do, no, so this is, if you look okay. at, I'm okay. assuming you're referring to the DeFi Llama dashboard, which shows uh-huh. percent of open source versus closed source, right? Which has gone from 40% it, yeah. uh, a year and a half ago to now 90% open source, right? I assume that's what you're referring to because that's, that's the only shareable number I've seen anyone ever share. That is a TVL weighted number. That is showing by TVL how much of the stuff on Solana is open source versus closed source that's in DeFi Llama's database. That basically is saying that there's a huge amount of liquid staking on Solana and that stuff is open source. I I think it's probably, I mean, based on the developer numbers we have relative to the developer numbers the Solana Foundation publishes, I think we were off by about 2x. That was like the delta. And, And my theory is that we track only the open source devs and the Solana Foundation is probably using like RPC calls or like they have, they have like endpoints that they're looking at that are like accounts. And so I think it might actually be pretty close to like 50, 50 at this point. I, I always, I historically had the impression too, that it was a lot more closed source, but given that the Delta between like the numbers we're seeing and what the Solana foundation put out was like two X that suggests to me, we're like probably close to 50, 50 at this point. I mean, it might be like, well, we don't, yeah, we don't, I mean, we don't have to debate like open source versus closed source here. Cause I don't know. We all have different numbers here, but Hasib, I think the next question I throw to you is, okay, let's say it is EVM. What is the EVM landscape going to look like? Right. Because there's kind of the, you know, the, the early folks like Arbitrum and Optimism and kind of like the first L2s. Now there's this new wave of like folks trying to parallelize the EVM and there's um, who'd, who'd uh, say and Monad and this kind of next mm-hmm. wave of folks working on the EVM. So what does that look like in your mind? Yeah, so it's very clear that uh, part of the reason why Solana has gained so much mindshare is because of their relentless pursuit of high performance. And everyone realizes that this is, you know, every bull market we see that this is the problem is that we don't have enough performance. We need more, more scale, more DACA, more, just more, more, more. And in this case, I think, you know, Solana makes some really steep trade-offs in order to achieve that performance, right? And you know, I, I alluded to some of them, obviously we, we can you know, debate the particulars of how much open source, closed source, whatever. But one of the things that you get from Solana because of its pursuit of performance is that 
the EVM was really designed to be a smart contract platform from the ground up, right? And, and it made a lot of trade-offs. I mean, actually, I should, take, I should take that back. It was designed kind of in a harebrained weekend, but it has evolved <laughs> to become more of a, of a focus on just smart contracts. Um, you know, if you look on Solana, for example, just to, just to kind of drill in the point and then I'll, I'll bring it back to Parallel EVM. Um, you know, on Solana, uh, if you go on Solana Block Explorers, you can't see contract code. Why can't you see contract code, right? The whole point of blockchain is that you, you, know, don't, you don't need to verify, you can trust, or sorry, other way around. You don't need to trust, you can verify, you should know exactly what you're interacting with. Even for the things that are open source on Solana, how do you know that the thing you're interacting with is the thing whose source is open? It seems like an obvious question. Well, on, on the EVM, it's trivial to do that. On Solana, it's not. Even the Solana, all the canonical block explorers, you can't see the contract code. You don't know what you're interacting with. You kind of have to trust that you're interacting with the right thing. Now, one of the reasons why that is, is that uh, most of the Solana uh, uh, build process is not deterministic. When you're compiling shit in Rust, it's a, it's a non-deterministic compiler. It's not designed to be deterministic. If you want deterministic builds, they're slower. And compilation in Solana is already a pain point. It's slow. It's annoying. People don't want to, people don't want to eat the cost of, of doing that, at least not right now. And the culture doesn't demand it. So when you interact with things that are nominally open source on Solana, it's very difficult for you to actually even verify that the thing you're interacting with is the thing that supposedly is on GitHub. Um, EVMs have solved this problem, and it's very deeply baked into the culture of the EVM that you, you can't get one without the other. It's claiming something is open source but not actually being able to verify in a block explorer that, yes, this is the bytecode that this Solidity code produces. Um, that is the only way to actually be confident that, yes, this is the, the uh, thing I'm interacting with. EVM gives you all of that. It gives you the interoperability. It gives you the guarantees about transparency and verifiability, um, not because of something intrinsic about the EVM, but because of all of the tool chain and the supply chain and the culture and the and the you know the audited code and the contracts and blah 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 all that shit. It's all already there. It's all already been built. If we started with Solana, or we started with SVM, we would probably all have have all that shit for the SVM as well. But we didn't. We started with EVM, and so therefore the EVM is just the most built out ecosystem for this. Um, so so now I think there's this. Relentless pursuit to, okay, if we take it for granted that the EVM is JavaScript, look, JavaScript sucks. It was a horrible language that also was written in, you know, kind of a, a cocaine-filled weekend by uh, uh, Brenton Eich, basically <laughs> trying to ship something out as a V1, and we got stuck with it. We're just stuck. It was horribly designed. It was not really built for being the world-scale language, but it's now the most used language in the world because most computers are basically glorified browsers now. It's all we do is just sit in browsers. And so JavaScript is basically most of what your computer does. It's just run fucking JavaScript. So JavaScript is super, super, super highly optimized. It is probably the most optimized language in existence besides maybe C and C++. Um, and so because of that, you know, the, the, the analogy you can draw is, okay, the same thing will probably happen to the EVM. And I've been waiting for a very long time for somebody to really seriously do this. And it's more or less taken until this year for serious contenders to try to do to the EVM what has long been done by uh, Google and, and Mozilla to JavaScript for, for that same process to happen to the EVM. Uh, and so if you look at something like Monad, for example, so Monad, uh, it's, not, it's not currently live yet. Say is also doing a parallel EVM, but you know, my, my bags are in Monad, so I'm, I'm going to show Monad. Um, uh, Monad, what, what they're essentially doing is taking the, you know, sort of the modern blockchain design that is massively changed since when you know, Ethereum was first developed of you know, separating execution and consensus, uh, using something like hot stuff or more PBFT style, uh, more <laughs> modern consensus mechanisms, uh, totally rebuilding the storage system. Right now, almost all the geth, uh, uh, geth chains, whether it's Binance Smart Chain or Polygon or whatever, they just fork geth, their bottleneck is storage. 
uh, almost almost all the time because Mer- Merkle Patricia trees, which are the data structure for Ethereum, just fucking suck to read and write to uh, efficiently from storage. Um, and so they're basically designing their own database that only is optimized for storing and retrieving Merkle Patricia trees. And all of this stuff leads to really, really massive throughput gains. And then the last thing, of course, so you know, we talk about parallel EVM. Uh, I didn't mention anything about parallelization because parallelization is actually a very small part of what leads to the performance gains in these new next generation uh, EVM implementations. Um, but they're also parallelizing, they're using block STM, which was originally uh, created by Libra and later by Aptos and Sui, or co-opted by Aptos and Sui to basically do like kind of optimistic uh, concurrency or parallelization. A little bit different from Solana, more similar to what Aptos and, and Sui do in um, assuming that, hey, we can kind of guess, much more like what your uh, processor does, is guessing which uh, uh, transactions or which computations can be parallelized. And if we get it wrong, oh, okay, we rewind and then we just do these things serially. Uh, that's, that's a very high level intuition for all the things that these new generation of EVMs are trying to do to massively increase performance and get, you know, they're, they're never going to be Solana-like performance. Uh, because they're running EVM, and EVM is just a big constraint. Um, but they're getting massively more performance than you can get just doing a vanilla, you know, geth-type implementation. So can, can I highlight a couple of places where I think I just disagree with a bunch of this stuff that Hesse was throwing out there? So I think, it. one, it's not clear to me that the right analogy is the operating system. Um, I tend to think of these things much more like programming languages and databases, because I think you're, I don't know who said it, maybe Santi. But I don't think the end user five years from now is going to care that it's running on Solana or Ethereum or, or Near or Monad or some L2. They just want to like do the thing. They just want to solve a problem that they have. And it reminds me a lot of what happened with like mobile or what happened with early internet. Like there was a time with mobile where like as an angel investor or as a VC or even a founder, you would go in and you would pitch and, and you would pitch that I'm an iPhone app and I, I, I like I look at all the new APIs and I take advantage of the new camera APIs and, and, and therefore I can do X, Y, Z. And at a certain point, it, you just stopped pitching that you were an iPhone app. You just went in and you pitched and you were like, I solved this problem. And, and you know, if, you, if at that point, like today, if you came into a VC's office and you're like, we're a mobile app that does XYZ, the VCs would look at you and be like, well, of course you are. Like, what, if you're not a mobile app, like, what are you doing? Right? Like, that's where all the users are. Um, and so I think we're, we're kind of on a similar arc here. And so five years from now or seven years from now or 10 years from now, people just won't care what the database is that this thing runs on. And if we get to that world, it's not clear to me that... Um, that these distinct that, that a the market structure will be eighty percent EVM uh, one right like it's it, that's just you can have a lot of fragmentation because a lot of different developers can choose to plug these components in in different ways like you need one execution environment and one data availability layer and some other for settlement and like you can plug these things together and the end user won't really care and that might break the network effects right that might mean that you don't get power laws anymore you get a high degree of fragmentation two it's interesting that we think of this as EVM right like that just happens to be sort of a, a, a the nature of the compatibility that we're talking about, but actually underneath the EVM are a lot, you know, Arbitrum is different than Optimism is different than Monad is different than ethel one. Like, you know, these are, these are actually different chains in some sense. Um, and that in some sense also breaks the network effects, right? It's, it's different flavors of a, of a thing that happens to be compatible and, and can talk to each other, but they're not actually the same thing. Um, I also think that if it's true that the, the, the network effects are sort of at the technology layer, but not at the chain layer, what that means is like the real power in the ecosystem is that is that the layer of whoever has the de- has either the developers or has the users, and I think it's going to be actually towards the users. Um, and I think if like from that perspective, the the real sort of question 
the question that sort of in the back of my head is like, in 10 years, are any of these things even worth remotely what they're worth today? Right? Do you actually end up in a world where like actually all the value capture happens at like Coinbase, right? Because Coinbase is the place where you have to like fiat your money in, on ramp it, interact with a bunch of stuff. And it's on a phone. And like, who cares what chain it's on? I just need to do the thing. I need to move my money around. I need to get to my payroll. I need to like pay my creator friend like 10 bucks this month for whatever service. And who cares like what service it's running on? Um, and so I think, I think there's actually an argument here that this is not going to be 80-20. I think there's an argument that actually even inside the EVM, it's going to be like 100 different things. And at the end user just won't care at all. Um, okay, so let's, let's take that for granted. Let's assume that we're in that world where there's total chain abstraction. As a user, I you know I just have a wallet. I don't even know it's not a Solana wallet, it's not an Ethereum wallet. It's a crypto wallet. Yeah. And the the wallet figures it all out. It bridges. Yeah. Bridging is fat. You know, blah blah. That's blah. not so even magic. Theoretical. All like the friction's gone. Magic Eden is doing this now. For example, they just their new wallet just sort of like seamlessly switches between chains. You don't have to think about where you're. Like, is it a Solana NFT or is it a Bitcoin NFT? I don't have to. Sure. Think about Let's it. assume that. Let's assume that it's multi-chain. It does all the bridging. Yeah. It's it's super smart. Okay. It's yeah. like AI driven. Whatever. Who, who gives yeah. shit? Um. So we're we're already there. Okay. We're already there. Yeah. It, it does not sound plausible to me that, okay, because we're there, because we're in that world where most consumers are interacting with this super smart wallet router app, um, yeah. that, like, let's take for granted that, okay, I want to tr trade. I want to buy a CryptoPunk. I want to move some USDC around, right? The way in which I move that USDC around, I think you're right. It's, it's going to be, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of like Swift, right? It figures out what rails to take the bank transfer to go from here to there. It doesn't, you know, that's totally opaque to me. If my friend is on Solana, they'll get the USDC on Solana. If my friend is on Arbitrum, they'll get it on Arbitrum, right? So there, it doesn't seem to me like there's going to be a payments-based monopoly per se, unless it's, you know, focused around liquidity and large size. But for small size, it can basically be anywhere, right? Okay, fine. Um, now, for the most part, I'm going to want to interact with like a game, an NFT mm -hmm. platform, a, a blah, 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 right? I, I want to interact with something, and the thing that I want to interact with, is it plausible that it's, okay, well, every single thing is going to live on Solana or every single thing is just going to be dispersed uniformly across blockchain such that everybody sort of has their own blockchain? Or do we expect there to be some agglomeration where there's like, yeah, I want to, I want to buy this NFT and I go, to, I go to OpenSea or I go to Magic Eden or I go whatever and it just so happens that this NFT is on Solana or this NFT is on Ethereum. And it's still on Ethereum. Even five years later, it's still on Ethereum. If we ask the question, why five years later is it still on Ethereum? Why is it not on, okay, everything is on its own chain and because it's all abstracted, nobody ever has to worry about competing for block space ever again. And all the, all the blockchains have no network effects and all the fees have gone to zero. Why didn't that happen? And to my mind, the reason why that didn't happen is, is twofold. One is that there are real good reasons why you want atomic composability and tighter integrations between certain ecosystems, especially when it comes to like on-chain liquidity, there's a lot of stuff in DeFi that benefits from having the liquidity there on the same chain. Mm -hmm. But the second thing in my mind is the intolerant minority. This is a concept from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, where he talks about, I think the analogy he gives is uh, kosher, like kosher uh, uh, food, in that most people don't give a shit about kosher. They don't care if their food is kosher or isn't kosher. If you tell me like, oh, these Cheetos are kosher, like I'm, I, even, if I, even if I'm not Jewish, I, I'm fine, I'll just eat the Cheetos. Um, but the people who are Jewish, they really fucking care whether this stuff is kosher or not. And so they are basically going to dictate that every piece of, uh, of junk food is kosher because you might as well just make it kosher so that Jewish people also eat it. Um, so this, this concept is known as the intolerant minority, where a small number of people with very strong preferences end up shifting the entire economy in a certain direction if the cost is relatively low in order to satisfy those preferences. And this feels to me like the reason why NFTs are not just going to 
you know, sh shard into a thousand different blockchains and be uniformly distributed over everything or over a, a kajillion L2s. Instead, I suspect the most valuable NFTs will still live on Ethereum. Why? Because there are probably going to be some hipsters in the year 2029 that are like, yo, I, I just believe that Ethereum NFTs are more valuable than the ones on Solana. And like, I still care about that. And maybe most people don't. And maybe most retail people, yeah, they just know Coinbase and, you know, they don't even know what chains are. They just know crypto and they, you know, their, their wallet figures it all out for them. But, but I still know. And I still really care. And like, there's something to me important about the Ethereum culture, religion, Solana culture, Solana religion, et cetera. Even if someone goes and forks Solana and says, oh, Solana is so expensive now. There's all this competition for block space. It's too, you know, state rent is too expensive on Solana. You know, Solana is going to implement state rent. It's going to be expensive to store state on Solana. Um, but eventually there will be another Solana and somebody will fork it and they'll, and they'll say, well, why not launch your NFT on Solana too? And the answer is going to be, well, because it's not, it's not the real Solana. And some people will care about that, even if most people don't. All right, I mentioned them in the pre-roll. Now I'm going to bring them up again. It's Arbitrum. Santi and I are really fed up with these high fees and we're really excited to have teamed up with Arbitrum for the next couple of months on Empire. As the leading Ethereum scaling solution, Arbitrum now powers hundreds of decentralized apps across DeFi, perps, NFTs, gaming, and a whole lot more. The team has showed us everything in the ecosystem, both now and what's to come, and we're really, really excited about it. Arbitrum allows both daily users and developers to interact with Ethereum at scale with low fees and faster transactions. The way the team got me excited was through portal.arbitrum.io. So my call to action to you is to get started by visiting portal.arbitrum.io. Go experience on-chain like it was meant to be. For a lot of Empire listeners, your crypto is not just another number on a screen. It's part of your future. I know Santi and myself feel that way. Our security sponsor of this episode, Harpy, takes this responsibility seriously and is the only wallet security tool that shields users from both on-chain threats and sneaky off-chain signature attacks. If you've ever been in that situation where you're moving quickly, you approve something on-chain, you realize that the address might be a dubious address or you're really hoping that you can take that back, Harpy has you covered. Harpy can redirect your assets to your self-custodied vault, ensuring they remain completely under your control, safe and sound. With Harpy's always-on monitoring, you're not just detecting threats, you're actively blocking and recovering compromised assets from malicious transactions before they can even confirm on-chain. Harpy is the only wallet security solution that protected 100% of its users from attacks like the Ledger one in Q4, which was an off-chain signature attack. So if you're serious about protecting your crypto investments, it's time to make the switch. Secure your wallet for free at harpy.io forward slash empire. That's harpy, H-A-R-P-I-E dot I-O forward slash empire. If you want it to be even easier, just click the link in the show notes. I know it's early and, but like, are you, like, I, I see this stuff that's happening in Solana and I've constantly updated my thesis. Uh, now I understand like the, the question that I think is most important is like, why haven't we seen more hacks in Solana? I'm not sure it's because like i agree rust is not like move like move is like actually probably a language that you know we should be able to like we should probably like i would take a bet that move becomes a more prevalent language just pure, purely on a security basis and so if you're jp morgan visa like you know that matters mm -hmm. to you um mm -hmm. but still like i don't know like i'm not hearing a very convincing argument as to why solana can't like overtake evm um, you know, and you hear time and time again from founders that are trying to like vampire attack in some capacity the EVM and like, you know, the, the current liquidity and users are there and the culture is there, but is it really like, I don't know, like, 
you know, I, I, I still am of the mind. Of <laughs> what do you mean, today. is it really? No, no, no. Like, I, I, what I'm trying to say is, as you think of, like, investing your capital and where the space is headed mm. in, in, a, yeah. in a 10-year time horizon is, is where I'm looking. And if you extend and, yeah. and I know it's you extrapolate what's happening today, I just think a lot, like, when you think about the scalability trilemma, you know, there is, I think, a threshold by which you reach in terms of sufficient security sufficient decentralization that I think Solana has crossed that the most yeah. important thing at that point is scalability and fees being as low as they are in Solana in my mind is the most important driver that gives me conviction that Solana's share relative to the EVM is going to grow by an order like by, by meaningful share over the next five, 10 years. And, I, and I'm not I, hearing I, I arguments from you that, I that, that you. it's not. Okay. No, no, no. I, I am not saying that Solana is not going to continue growing. And I'm also not saying that, Solana doesn't have a very important place in the ecosystem, right? To be clear, and let me let me re-underscore this, uh, because I think I, I may come across as though like I think Solana's going to die or something. Like, no. Asim just, uh, Asim just is... doesn't want the uh, intolerant Solana minority coming after him on Twitter. No, no, no. <laughs> Mert, look, yeah, come at, look, they already Mert, come at me all the time. It's fine. Yeah, Mert has raised up no. his pitchfork. <laughs> oh, many times, many times, many times. We're bringing Mert on stage. Look, it, <laughs> Here's the thing too. Cardano people, like you, you well, that's, your, Cardano's different. You Cardano's different. You learned your lesson um, with the Cardano one. <laughs> no, no, no. The, look, the Solana team. The Solana team. Like they know. I, I, dude, I've been criticizing them for like fucking two years, and but we still invest in Solana. Like we own Soul. We invest into a bunch of stuff in the Solana ecosystem. They know that I. It, it, one, it comes from a place of love because like we're, look, we're long this shit because we believe that what they're doing is great. Like they're 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 killing it. Um, I, at, at the same time, like. Uh, look, I think Solana is going to continue to grow because of the fact that this niche that they're going after is fucking massive. It's extremely important, right? What, what are you going to be able to do with super high performance? Um, and I think in many ways, actually, I don't even know if it's so much about scalability, cross scalability in the sense of super low fees. Um, I think actually low latency is the thing that's most important about Solana rather than the low fees. Um, low fees are a function of demand. When demand goes up, fees go up. That's just how it works. Like there's there's no magical, we're the low fee chain, right? That, that, that means we are the... Uh, capacity exceeds demand chain. That's what it means to have low fees. Um, when when demand goes up, fees will go up. Period. And if you're right that Solana is on this ascension, which you know, great, we're long Solana. I'd love to see that. Um, fees will go up. That's normal. Every chain goes through that. Uh, at the end of the day, what what I am arguing is that it is very hard for Solana to play the same role that the EVMs play because they're optimizing for a different thing. And to be clear, Anatoly is very clear about that. He's always been very clear about that. Yeah. That like, look, I'm not trying to be what Ethereum's trying to be. I'm trying to be something very different. I'm trying to build the NASDAQ on the blockchain. And everything that he is doing from an architectural, from a, from a, from a, you know, the point you were making about security and decentralization, I agree with you. I, you know, in the very early days, I criticized Solana for lack of decentralization. I think Solana is very decentralized now. Um, I think the development of Solana is not decentralized, and that's obvious to everybody. That's true for every Alta one. Every, no Alta one has, has decentralized development, and that's fine. You know, whatever. It's it, they're, they're startups. Um, my view on Solana is not the problem. With Solana is that it's not decentralized, or it's not real. You know, it's not a real blockchain or whatever. There, there are people who make all sorts of criticisms about, you know, the and and I and I've made some of them, and I think they're real, and I, and I do have real concerns about the auditability and verifiability of what's happening on Solana. You can't run, run a live client. You can't verify the code. Blah blah blah. All that shit is real. They can eventually fix it. They haven't fixed it yet, um, uh, but these are all solvable problems, right? None, nothing that I described is beyond the pale of solving, but it is just true that, that Solana is optimizing for a different set of things than, than Ethereum and the EVMs are optimizing for, and that's very likely to lead them winning in different sectors than the EVMs in which the EVMs are going to win. And you see it, like the market is telling you this, that um, you know, although DeFi is making a comeback on Solana, 
it is not as much as DeFi has made a comeback everywhere else, right? So if you look, just look at the, the TVL recovery overall in crypto, Solana has recovered to something on the order of, you know, one-tenth of where it was in the FTX era, whereas, uh, you know, there's been tens of billions that have flowed into the rest of the, uh, the crypto ecosystem and, and all the EVMs, because EVM, EVMs are safer. Now, obviously, there are a lot more hacks that we've seen in the EVM space. Large part of the reason for that is there's just a lot more shit to hack, right? Like there's, instead of having three protocols of which, you know, the code is all poorly understood and it's all, you know, it's written in Rust and there's not as much tooling to be able to actually, you know, if you're, if you're a black hat and you want to go hack Solana, you know, we should, we should more or less, you know, my view is that there's an efficient markets hypothesis around this stuff is that probably even if you do hack stuff on Solana, it's hard to monetize a hack on Solana. Um, you know, it's not as much liquidity. Uh, there's, you know, it's easier to, to uh, choke things off. Like, I, I don't know. I, I more or less assume that there's, there's, if you're a black hat and you're thinking about how to spend your time, um, there's, there's also just so much laying fruit. Who wants to learn a new language when there's already so many, um, you know, fish in the barrel you can shoot in EVM land? But if Solana really does become dominant, which it hasn't yet, and it may, uh, if Solana really does become dominant, there will be uh, a reckoning for all of the tech debt that has been incurred on the Solana side. And, and there's certainly a lot. Now, they've been working on it, but uh, I think there's certainly a lot. And, 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 and I say that with eyes wide open. I'm investing in Solana anyway because I believe its utility for the use cases they're targeting is there. And I think that's one of the things in which we haven't talked about, which I think is, is actually perhaps the most interesting thing about Solana is that no other chain, even Monad, even a lot of these other chains, nobody is trying to do as low latency as Solana. A big yeah. part of the reason for that is that Solana makes a lot of trade-offs around you know, the P2P architecture, the fact that there's one leader, the leader rotates immediately, there's no mempool, um, you know, th there's, there's no Merkleization. A lot of these things allow you to move much faster in rotating who the leader is. So Solana is 400 millisecond block times. Nobody else is even close to that. If you're talking about uh, stablecoin settlements, especially for traders, that is one of the things that I'm surprised has not already migrated to Solana, where the fastest way to move stablecoins from exchange A to exchange B, if you're doing like high frequency shit, is on Solana. Now, most people do it on Tron. Tron is, is the predominant way today yeah. that people actually move stable coins from exchange A to exchange B well, if they want to move only, things quickly. Because well, the only thing faster than, than a decentralized system with 400 millisecond latency is a centralized system. And so that actually, actually kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, no, but, but Tron is slower. Tron is like two uh, second block. I think it's like two or three second block time. Oh, is it really? So Tron is actually, well, Tron is is actually it, an order of magnitude slower it, well, than Solana. On the chain, it is. I, don't, I actually don't know. I haven't looked at this, but on the chain, it certainly is. But are the exchanges honoring that, or are the exchanges doing stuff like, you know, a presumptive, you know, uh, closing the block? No, and they're like, oh. no, 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 no. So actually, you, you pull this up. Uh, I think Kraken has their uh, Kraken. They they publish. Like, uh, let me see here. Confirmation like, times. Like I know, I know the, I know the data. Chain. Yeah, I know the data on uh, on like all the volume is through Tron. But you know this. This might actually speak to like as you were talking through there. One thing I was thinking was like you know I think part of the reason that I think it's not anywhere close to game over. I mean, it reminds me of like you know Facebook versus MySpace in some sense, which is an overdone analogy. But I think there there is a lesson here, which is MySpace had eighty million users when Facebook got started, like and, and Facebook won, right? And and so like these network effects, even at eighty million users, were not enough that some of the, some something else couldn't overcome it. And so we're just such an early days here that I actually think a lot of the network effects are going to be driven by the killer apps. And I think that you, you could certainly imagine a situation where there's a killer app that emerges on Solana. Maybe it's Visa because of stablecoin settlement, right? They're, they're, they said that they're playing on Solana now, um, such that all of a sudden you get the next 100 million real users coming into that chain. And all of a sudden the network effects of like 25,000 developers on ETH and 
you know, a couple billion dollars just gets overtaken in, in 12 months. Like, I, I don't think that's out of the question here. So like, that, it's part of what, I mean, to, to um, I think it was maybe Santi, your original question, but, you know, I think that's one of the really challenging things in, in investing in this space is we're so early that the network effects, I think, as they are, I don't think they're insurmountable by any means. And so, you know, like one thing is, as you said earlier, I mean, first of all, like every blockchain has anti-network effects. Perhaps yeah, yeah, Solana yeah. is the one that doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, like, that's the thing. Like, I think network effects are largely misunderstood here. And I think someone like DYDX, Antonio will tell you very quickly. Yeah. Like, this is why we moved to Cosmos. Now, we haven't talked about Cosmos, but yeah. to your point of each of like, where do you actually believe that we may achieve some degree of anti net, like, of network effects? Because every chain today has anti network effects. Yeah. As, so as I, I, I don't know. I I I, I kind of think I it's dispute, like I dispute that that it's not anti-network effects, right? It's bounded network effects. Bounded, bounded. network effects, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. but that's true for Solana too. If Solana yeah. gets like you yeah. know with, 100 with million few, people using market, it today, yeah. Solana's going to need to improve. Yeah. The, Solana's going to need their version of one five five nine. They're going to end up needing Solana L yeah, twos. Sure. Like this is going to. Ha- I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna pull us forward. I'm gonna pull us forward into the next topic because we spent an hour on this already, and it's actually a. Uh, it's Shit, rela- that was only one topic? It's, rela- it's, it's <laughs> related. It's related to this, which is... Oh, before, before we move on, just one thing I want to close the loop on. I have it in front of me. The Kraken confirmation times per chain. Yeah. Tron, USDT on Tron is two minutes. Solana is two blocks. So basically a second to hmm. get to have it show up in your Kraken account. Everyone thought this was going to be the cycle. This is the cycle where we put infrastructure behind us and we mm. start talking about the big app and the consumer use case and millions of people. And here we are and we're, we just spent an hour talking about programming languages and the L1s again. Yeah. So my question to you, maybe Avitra, I'd throw this to you, is uh, is this actually the cycle where we get the big use case and the big consumer thing? Um, or is this a, one more cycle, which is probably actually totally fine. Maybe it's not fine, but is this one more cycle of, of infrastructure? Um, just one I more cycle, bro. Just one more cycle. But, but, also, but also, it's at, like... Steve just keeps pumping his monad one, bags. He's just like, one more cycle with infrastructure. But, but, but Please, also, bro, bro, just give me one more cycle. But also, one more cycle. I like, promise I'll give you a okay, well, if, No, hold well, on. Uh, well, I think it's a relevant conversation because, Steve, you guys spend a lot of time in Asia. Yeah. The question is, mm-hmm. are we going to, like, Nervos type that didn't live up to its expectation, but are we going to see actually some sort of regional fragmentation, or is this too low-level infra that it doesn't matter, and we're just going to have a, kind of a, this duopoly that you guys are both agreeing on? No. Basically, no. And, and yeah. why, why is that? Like, the tech depth just isn't there to, like, do the innovation that you need to really win? At the base layer? Yeah, I, look, I think the if you're talking about ecosystems, definitely not, right? I mean, you can look at Binance Smart Chain and say, okay, well, this is like the China slash emerging market slash, you know, Binance distribution chain, which is true. Yeah. Um, you know, Polygon has huge penetration in India and Indonesia. And so there, it is obviously the case that there are certain chains that have higher geographical penetration in certain places. Um, the idea that at equilibrium, we, you know, we're going to have a chain for China that's written from the ground up to be for China. I think we're, we're way past that being a possibility. I think that's obviously absurd and it's not going to happen. Um, the, the question of will there be uh, sort of within the EVM ecosystem, will there be a layer two or a roll-up or uh, an a application-specific blockchain that is catered to a, a local application that's maybe you know, in Malaysia, they have the, you know, this hot app and they are like, oh, we're going to roll it on L2 because it's, you know, it's too expensive for our users to be on uh, mainnet or something. Yeah, totally, that, that might happen. In a sense, that's what Binance Merchant is. It's like 
hey, Binance has a lot of users that no one else has, and and they're going to let them play in their you know little yeah. walled garden. Um, that is absolutely going to be a thing. But is somebody going to rewrite from the ground up this new blockchain that's going to be for China? No. Avicho, let me alter my question a little bit, which is sure. you guys sit in the invest in the investment seat. Yeah. No matter how good a consumer app is, most of them still don't have a token. So mm-hmm. you guys aren't actually incentivized at this stage of where we're at in crypto to invest in that. So what gets us to like get over that infrastructure hump? Uh, I, I actually think we are incentivized. Um, I, I think that it kind of goes back to this idea of what is the catalyst for this stuff actually working long-term. And I think if, if we're like in this constant cycle of let's build the next gen infrastructure it just doesn't bring in enough people to actually use the thing and until there's like fundamental utility um this stuff doesn't work and so in some sense it's kind of like the the bitcoiners went through this i think where you realize that if you just hold bitcoin it's that that's important but like there has to be lightning like you want the thing to like have flow there needs to be usage there needs to be like businesses integrating with it you need to have square doing its thing and so this ecosystem matters you need to have you need to incentivize the devs to keep working on it you can't just have a chain that's dead because the core devs don't work work on it so like almost from like an ecosystem perspective if you think of it as a portfolio i think there's a strong argument that if investors are not investing in things beyond infrastructure the infrastructure is useless like you have to be investing in the in the ecosystem if only and, and this is not the reason to do it but i'm saying if only to make sure that your infrastructure investments are actually used they have to be apps right now, the way we think about it is actually beyond that, which is that the real end case here, the end state that we would like to get to is that people don't even mention the word crypto, right? It's just the, the way we don't mention the, the word mobile. You know, it's just, it's just an app. It's just you solve a problem. I'm taking a photo. I need to like order groceries. I need to get a car. Like you just think of the thing that you need to do. And some of those things will use cryptography. Like I think the solution to a lot of the AI deep fake stuff is, is a cryptographic solution. It's like the White House needs to attest that they're the ones who took this video. They need to publish that cryptographic signature somewhere into an open uh, database that anybody can read from. It cannot be corrupted easily uh, based on some standard that everybody agrees to. And like, what do you know? Like, that's literally what we've created here, right? Or we have a portfolio company, will never have a token. It's a company called Spruce. Spruce now powers the California DMV's uh, uh, app. So like your, your California DMV, your driver's license in the state of California on your phone is powered by Spruce. Spruce originally started as sign in with Ethereum. So it's literally the same public-private key cryptography ported for this like government use case. And now your driver's license in California and actually another state is powered by that same technology. That's real utility, right? And so I think like for this stuff to as a technology to get out into the market and power healthcare use cases and government use cases and, and real-world use cases, I think is really, really important. And then between that, between sort of the infrastructure and these like apps that will never have a token and may never even write out to a chain, there's this huge white space of stuff that's kind of messy and in the middle. And so you look at something like an NFT marketplace and you say, well, you know, like that trades NFTs, that kind of has some NFT L1 stuff. Maybe it could be its own L2. Maybe it needs gas. Maybe it doesn't. Should it have its own loyalty points? Should it have its own token? And so I think there's this like messy middle right now, especially around things like NFTs, creators, social, um, which I think will probably have both. I think it will have like an end user utility where people just want to use the thing for the thing. But it's going to be crypto native. It'll take advantage of things like cryptography, L1s, gas, loyalty points, um, marketplace dynamics, bonding curves. Like there are these like really interesting innovations that will get baked into those applications. It won't you won't call it a crypto application. It'll just be a marketplace that does a thing. Um, and 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 that middle ground I think is really interesting right now. I think it's entirely possible that in this next cycle, two or three people kind of stumble into some really interesting stuff there. And so you're starting to see the very early beginnings of that. Like so to me. 
something like FriendTech um, feels to me like the first sort of proto social network or Farcaster working. It's sort of starting to feel like, you know, we're in that like 2002 era of social. So like this is this is even a little bit before my time at Stanford. But at Stanford, there was a there was a social network that was launched um, called uh, Club Nexus. It was started by this guy Orkut, and then Orkut went on to work at Google and started the social network called Orkut that took off Orkut that took off in like Brazil and India. It was, it was bigger than MySpace and Facebook in some of these markets for a long time. Um, but they were sort of like proto networks. They didn't have like a news feed. They didn't have like a lot of what we would look at as a, as a social network today. Um, and it took a couple of years of exploration. I think we're in that window now. I think like somewhere. In the next three years, somebody will figure out like a social app, for example, that really takes advantage of the native social breakthroughs, the social innovations here. And that might be the thing that goes really viral or, or gaming, right? There's how many like great teams that actually have gaming experience have, have now entered the space and have been hacking for the last two years. Like the last gen games that we had, they were fine, but they were kind of, you know, like the, the play to earn stuff. Most of it was because people were grinding to get tokens, not because they wanted to play the game. And I think this cycle, you might actually get some games that are fun to play. Um, or, you know, NFTs themselves, like, you know, in this bear market, people, I don't know how, how closely people have been paying attention, but like Nike's been shipping, uh, LVMH did, did a drop. Um, like these big brands have been continuing to sort of push forward with their teams because the people who understand luxury goods and understand social signaling understand that this is actually digital social signaling. And, and that's a huge market. Like literally the richest man in the world is Elon Musk. The second richest man in the world, uh, Bernard Arnault, runs LVMH. And, and their business model, if you look at it, is to take capital and to turn it into social capital. Like that's literally when you buy you know, a Louis Vuitton handbag, what are you doing? You're buying social capital. You're signaling to all the other primates that you have excess capital. And that clearly has to be digital, right? Like, and this, this is just like a really deep ingrained human, human behavior. And it, it, you know what it reminds me of is like um, in the early days of the internet, there, there used to be these graphs that were like amount of time spent on uh, newspapers, amount of time spent on the internet, dollars spent on newspapers, dollars spent on the internet. And, and you're like, wait, that just has to fix itself. Like the dollars have to go where the people are. And, and I think we're in a similar state right now with digital goods spending and luxury goods spending. Like all the luxury goods spending is offline and it has to move online. And NFTs are the vehicles to do that. Like right now we can't see our shoes. Why does it make sense for me to buy thousand dollar shoes? That makes no sense. Um, Right, you can't see what's on my wrist. Like it doesn't make sense for me to buy a twenty thousand dollar watch. Um, all of that spending, all of those billions of dollars to spend, I think move online. So I think we have these like categories. So is that, does that mean that you have a twenty thousand dollar hat? <laughs> no, that, yeah, that's I, a, actually, priceless. No, that's yeah. true. No, it's, that's actually that's actually a good insight. Off his watch. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but that, that's a really good insight. Hey man, right? you're talking about watches. I like watches, man. What are you talking about? Like I'm crypto a, people, we can have. I, 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 yeah, but, I mean, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like. Point, point being, though, I think like we have some really interesting candidates beyond the infrastructure now, whether it's social and sort of proto-social networks, NFTs as social networks, NFTs for social signaling, um, you know, these other applications that may or may not um, actually have, you know, uh, on-chain influence. Like we're, we're starting to, I think, I think, see some proto-applications here that I think could actually break out. Um, and you only really need one of them. Like, you know, you get one or two and all of a sudden everybody will start copying it and mimicking and, and building on top of it and, and you're off to the races. I completely I agree with you on the NFT side. Uh, I actually, I love, I love the point you brought up about uh, Elon Musk, which is that, which is also something that just occurred to me, yeah. is that okay, richest man in the world, Elon Musk. Second richest man is the creator of LVMH. Uh, LVMH is doing NFT drops, and surely he must recognize that the second richest man in the world must recognize that the richest man in the world does not wear LVMH. 
It doesn't <laughs> signal that way. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't signal in the way that like the old world and like the that massive market yeah. into which he has locked in. Elon Musk signals in a totally different kind of way. Yep. And that is much more the way that crypto natives signal and think about social yeah. status and value. Um, and that's why I'm also bullish on NFTs. Uh, and I think they, they will come back and continue metamorphosing. However, I am uh, not bullish generally on crypto consumer and crypto social in a, in a broader sense. NFTs, mm-hmm. I think, I kind of uh, bucket in more with financialization of status. And you know, or, I, I think the further away you get, into the outer reaches farther away from money, the less crypto holds valence and the less power it really has to actually um, create new, more interesting products or things. Um, the, clo- the closer you are to that core, and I think NFTs are actually still pretty close to that core of being about money and value and status, um, the more valence I think crypto has and the more power it has to have real staying power. I think we always want validation into our interests and, you know, if you're collecting art, wine, watches, whatever it is, or digital, translate that and include digital first, then it doesn't really matter. You, you want validation. Crypto is a really good mechanism to find price discovery on these tail end of things, much better than the real world because you drive more liquidity. The question I ask is, um, so music NFTs is an example, or games, as we saw DeFi with a veneer of gaming, which was like farming games was better than playing Axie. And no one can tell me otherwise because I had a lot of fun farming in DeFi summer uh, until prices collapse. Or you had max. Nonetheless, um, are there instances where, as you talk about like moving outside of these like, like concentric circles, like the closer are your financialization, the better? Does it? Are, are you guys like not investing in things where you think that by introducing financialization or more of it in a more real time manner, it actually detracts from the user experience? So, like gaming is an example, right? If you're playing World of Warcraft, hey. Maybe you play it and then you're like, whoa, I can actually sell these things. But if it's constant, real time, it's distracting. It's noise. And so it degrades from the user experience. The same way that perhaps artists with music NFTs realize, which is like, wait a minute, my fan base all of a sudden might call me because the price of the NFT collapsed 90%. That's not good because it, it introduces a vector that I don't like. So I am curious if you, if if uh, one your views on, on gaming, on music, and like some of these other things that are trying to overly perhaps financialize the and detract from the consumer experience. Uh, thoughts there? There are a lot of things in the range of human experience that shouldn't be intertwined with money. Like if if you give me a gift, and I give you back a gift, and I point out to you that like, well, my gift was worth slightly more than your gift. Um, it, it, it somewhat destroys what we were doing with the gift giving, right? If I, if I sit down with you and I'm like, hey, Santi, I know you're going through a tough time. Uh, I, I really want to support you. And look, you know this means a lot to me because my time is extremely valuable. I make, you know, whatever, huge amounts of money per hour and I'm foregoing that to spend this time with you. You would kind of be like, wow, what a fucking dick. Like that kind of ruined what I thought we were happening here. Um, so even though these things might be facially true, um, it's, it's actually important for a lot of the things that we do that they not be directly tied to money because there are different kinds of things that we do as human beings that are not about money. Um, and I think it's obviously true that for a lot of games, um, it, it, it does cheapen the experience or contort the experience, distort the experience. If we start making something that's about, you know, me uh, building a community and bettering myself and like, you know, really building something and getting very excited about creativity with, well, how much more money am I making per hour if I uh, keep leveling up my character or doing this or doing that? Like, I actually, I don't want that to be the experience that I have when I'm, you know, playing Elden Ring or whatever. Um, However, there are a lot of games 
that are some of the oldest games in history that are directly about money, right? So some of those popular games in the world are games that people, you know, people played Mahjong. It's one of the most popular games in Asia. I'm in Asia right now, right? People play Mahjong all day long. And Mahjong is played for money. People gamble over Mahjong. You know, people gamble over poker. They gamble over all sorts of games that have very, very deep valence. But the way in which the game is played and the kind of game that it is, is distorted by the gravitational field that money applies to what it touches. And so I think it requires some thoughtfulness in order to figure out how does a game interact with money in a way that makes both of them fun and doesn't cheapen the game and also doesn't, you know, kind of detract from the, the, the monetary game that is also happening underneath it. Um, I think we're still very early in exploring that intersection of, you know, if you think about it, poker, poker's, poker's a good game, I think. Obviously, it's very popular. It continues to be popular. It's been popular for a very long time. Um, there are very few games that have been invented in the last hundred years that are like poker. It's kind of strange that there, there's been so little kind of successful innovation in, you know, there are variations of poker, but they're all still, you know, 52 cards, people sitting around a table. There's nothing internet native. There's nothing like in a, in a digital space. There's nothing like, we, we haven't really figured out, you know, wh why is it? There must be a richer intersection between money and risk and gaming and fun and worlds. And there must be more there than we've currently explored. And that's where I think the most fertile intersection of crypto and gaming probably lives. Um, I don't think it's going to be, oh, well, your sword can be exported from this game to that game. Like, you know, that's a lot of what people talked about in these are V1 of when people thought about crypto and gaming. Um, I think it's going to be something more complex than that when crypto gaming really starts to work in a deep way. Um, until then, it's, it's been a lot of just kind of Ponzi schemes disguised as games uh, yeah. where you kind of work through the game in order to play the Ponzi scheme. And look, Ponzi schemes are fun, right? They're also one of the oldest forms of gaming in the world is, you know, bubbles and Ponzi schemes are naturally... I mean, that's what you could argue. That's what a meme coin is. A meme coin is a bubble as a game. And we all play the game of, you know, when, who, when do you get in the bubble? Did you pick the right bubble? Did you exit at the right time? It's a fun game. Um, but uh, it's, it's a different kind of game than I think what's going to end up working in, in, in uh, uh, the intersection of crypto and gaming. Well, I, I will say, I think that, so from an investment perspective, it's something we're very cognizant of. I, I think mm -hmm. we don't want to create incentives for people to cheapen the thing. It has to be additive. I, I agree with a lot of what Hasib was saying. I think though, and I, I also agree that I think the intersection of what crypto can do natively and either games or NFTs or social experiences is very underexplored right now. And in part, it's just, it is actually going back to the infrastructure thing. I think the infrastructure just wasn't ready. Like you couldn't actually have high throughput, you know, like what, what DYDX had to do over the last two years to, to get to the, the app chain that they built, like, you know, it just wasn't possible to do that in 2016, 2017. It, it took a lot of infrastructure building over the last five years to get to this point. Um, and, and actually, you know, if you look at the history of, of technology, people talk about these kind of like 10 year cycles. And, uh, and there's this turn of phrase, I think it might be a Bill Gates phrase that's, you know, people overestimate what's possible over two years and underestimate over 10, going back to what you were saying before, Santi. And, and we're like five years into the wave now, right? From if you think about the 17 ICO bubble to now, like five or six years in. And I think only now has the infrastructure gotten good enough, which is why I sort of think that if you think of these things on a roughly 10 year cycle, somewhere over the next like two or three years, somebody will stumble into some killer apps at the intersection of these things that will feel crypto native um, and really take advantage of the technology because it's now possible to do that like um who was it the xerox park guys that were doing the the zk game was that who that was was it park labs mm -hmm. yeah like that was a really early example of like people trying to take zk proofs and do something novel as a game uh with it 
Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more experimentation now that the tooling has actually gotten good and useful. And so we're just at the very beginning of that. Now, I think that the unfortunate reality is that when you hand a bunch of people technology and tooling, they will tap into these really uh, negative, potentially negative feedback loops that exist in the human brain. Um, and so you could certainly get people that build, that build things that are, um, that take advantage of these loops and are net negative, potentially net negative on society even, um, but are extremely addictive and have extremely good feedback loops. And, and so I think like as an investor, it's something we think about a lot. Like, are we, are we actually building, you don't want to invest in a thing that like, you don't, you don't want to invest in a literal casino. Like we don't at least. Right. And what we want to do is invest in, in markets that are helping price discovery on real fundamental utility happening. Like if we can get the capital markets all over the world to have uh, access to a better financial product in the form of reinsurance. Now, the reinsurer, which is creating a really net productive thing in the GDP, can actually go like fund that activity with a lower cost of capital because there's all these people that will give them money at a lower cost uh, because they don't otherwise have access to good financial products. Like that's a net positive use of, of capital on chain. Right. Um, but I think it's going to be, it's going to happen. Like it's unfortunate, and it, but it's inevitable. Like when you hand a bunch of people, a bunch of technology, mm -hmm. some of it, some of it is going to end up getting combined in a way that is going to take advantage of people and, and sort of exploit people. So I, I almost feel like at the market level, it's unavoidable that that happens. So yeah. what, what do you have against like, uh, casinos? Um, What's wrong with casinos? I, I think that, well, the, <laughs> the challenge with casinos is that there's like, um, there's a good way to run it and there's a not so great way to run it. The good way to run it is that it's, it's kind of as sort of the, the similar to the meme coin thing, right? Which is like, if everybody knows the game that they're playing, it's all good. Like we're all playing this game of money chicken. I put in 50 bucks, like let's play chicken and, and like whoever takes the money out last loses, right? So um, the problem comes, I think when, and, and it's a form of entertainment, right? And it's like, yeah, I was going to mm -hmm. spend like, I, I now have to spend 50 bucks at the movies. You know, great. This is better. Um, the problem comes when you have a bunch of market participants that don't realize they're playing a game or are unable to play the game in a way that is net productive to their life. Um, and that's the risk that you run when the motive for the existence of the entity is to create more money because the easiest path to creating more money is to take advantage of those people who are least likely able to understand that there's actually there's a game and they shouldn't like put all their money into the game because they're gonna it's like a it's a zero-sum game. And that's where I think uh, like bad actors can take advantage of that because there are a lot of people out there that don't understand what's happening. Um, I, I mean, it's something I worry about. I was actually talking to a, a set of founders just yesterday um, about you have to be really, you know, like one of the really interesting things with, with um, exchanges is um, the early people that come into this part of the market cycle often do understand that there's a game that's being played a lot of the people who come in like late cycle don't understand the game that's being played. But the saving grace often has been that you've denominated these other games, effectively, like if you think of meme coins as a game, that you've often denominated them in assets like BTC or ETH. And so you've inadvertently, when you take any profit or you've ended up with gas or dust or whatever, you've ended up with an asset that has actually store value kind of characteristics and has appreciated over time. And so the saving grace for a lot of people is they like, maybe they came for the game and then they ended up with a stack of chips at the end of it that was like, they're down 80%. And then they just ended up with some BTC, which when they looked back three years later, they're like, oh, whoa, I'm up on my Bitcoin. Like what happened, right? And so there's this like weird saving grace where it's like a lot of people play the game. They don't realize they're playing the game, but then they end up getting their butt saved because the thing that they, not the game that they were playing, but the other thing kind of saved their butt. And that actually, I think, ended up saving the, the exchanges in a lot of ways because that prevented the exchanges from burning all their users out. Like if you, if you imagine a situation where like everybody plays the meme coin game, 
and most people lose money because that's what's going to happen, um, you actually will just burn all your users. Like there's no reason for people to come back because they just like lose mm. faith in the system. Hasim, think- give me the give me the counter on me on meme coins. Are you pro meme coins? Uh, I I well I've been thinking about it a lot because we've been we've been digging into a lot of the data of uh, what's happening on certain of these super high engagement chains. Um, like if you look on Dex Screener and you just look at you know where where are most of the meme coins trading, uh, vast majority of them are on Solana, and that's actually where a lot of the retail engagement. You look at what what are all the transactions on Solana? What are all these people doing? Mostly they're trading meme coins, and you know when I talk to people who are like really young, one one thing I always try to track is like basically what's the what's the current young person's hustle that they're like you know sort of one step ahead of older more esteemed people who have real careers but they're making a lot of money um what's the thing that they're doing so like santi you know in, in uh, 2020 it was DeFi summer and it was like yield farming and all this other stuff and then a, a year later it was nft trading and then it was you know there was airdrop farming and you know that's kind of getting competed out uh and so now it's trading meme coins and there's just like this insane churn of meme coins where basically every couple of days there's a new meme coin. And these guys who are like, you know, 17, 18, 19, who just like are building up their bankroll, they're trading meme coins and they're looking at the alpha and they're looking at the signals. And they're seeing which one's coming up when. And the turnover on these is crazy high. Um, and Except that's a lot if it of has a hat, activity sure. on Solana. <laughs> if it has a hat, it has more, more longevity. Yes, that's yeah. right. Um, <laughs> that's right. But um, what's uh, what, what's interesting? So the thing that I was asking myself, looking at this, because I'm a fucking you know an old fart and I don't do any of this shit. So I'm like trying to <laughs> philosophize about meme coins, obviously. Um, so the the question I'm asking myself is like, okay, this is the game. This is the game on Solana. Uh, it's a game. On, obviously, there are meme coins everywhere, but Solana seems to be where most of them today are getting launched. Like people aren't launching them as much on Ethereum these days. And a large part of the reason why they're not is because Solana fees are so low. And so you know, there, I was reading a Reddit post about this guy who deposited. Like he gave his little brother $10 to go trade on Solana. And his brother's made like all these trades, like an insane amount of meme coins he's been going in and out of. And now he has $20. It's like, wow, he turned $10 to 20. Like that's, you know, people are, this is, this is the game on Solana. You can't do this on any other chain, right? You can't, you can't trade around $10 on any other chain. So um, now this, this, the thing that I'm thinking about this game is that this game doesn't seem sustainable to have this high churn of meme coins, right? Now, why do I say that? The reason why I say that is to Avichal's point um, this is a game that's rigged against you. There was a story recently about Zach XBT, you know, talking about a shit about meme coins. And people got mad at him. Normally, he's like the crypto Twitter hero, but then he kind of became the villain because people are like, "Oh, why are you shitting on meme coins?" And the thing he said is like, "Look, most meme coins are rug pulls," and he's right. Is that anybody who's launching a fly by night meme coin overnight, they are giving themselves a little bit of supply, pumping it as a meme coin. It dumps two days later, and they move on to the next one. Everyone is fine with the with the creator of the meme coin basically taking a big tax in order for them to create the game, the next casino game that we're all going to play to basically do the next Ponzi, right? Or the next, uh, you know, kind of game of chicken, essentially, as you described it, Vichel. I think that's right. I think that's the right mental model for what meme coins are, is we're all kind of playing this game of chicken. There's a new round that starts every couple of days, uh, and you get to play the new meme coin, and then we all move on to the next one, and it's all, it's all a function of what's doing the most volume and where you think you are in the hype cycle for this new meme coin. If that's the game that's being played, if you think about casinos, right, going back to casinos, uh, slot machines are the most popular things in casinos. They make the most money by far. They're insanely profitable. And they are p- perhaps one of the most optimized computer programs in human existence. What they are optimized for is to maximally extract money from people over unit time. And how do you maximally extract money over unit time? Well, you're, there's, there's kind of two things you're optimizing for. One is how much money you're getting per hour. 
and churn. You're minimizing churn, maximizing money per hour, and there's some complex function you're optimizing to make sure that you keep people there, you have the right variable ratio reward function, uh, but you're not taking too much money so they don't feel like they're losing enough bells and whistles in the meantime, right? That is what meme coins should be doing if they want to be sustainable. They should be trying to optimize for long-term longevity and minimizing churn, but obviously they're not going to do that because there's not a single actor in the meme coin game. There's all these different people launching meme coins and trying to get their meme coin to be front page so that they can make some money from you know, getting in and out of their own meme coin. Uh, and so it's just going to be too extractive. People are going to lose too much money over, over a long enough period of time such that... Now, this is not true for meme coins with longevity. So I think Dogecoin has infinite longevity. People will be able to play that game forever because it's not extractive at all. There is nobody who's making money from you except maybe exchanges from you trading Doge. And maybe with, you know, dog with hat, you know, there's nobody who's maybe making money from you at this point. Um, but for this meme coin uh, loop of there's a new meme coin coming out every other day, this game doesn't feel like it's sustainable. And I think this game, if you think about this kind of uh, random walk of like, what's the fashion that people are doing? Where before a year and a half ago, it was trading NFTs. And there's a new NFT collection every single day that people were jumping in and out of. And now it's moved on to meme coins. The question I was asking myself is, is this going to stay? And the answer to my mind, if you look at this, is probably no. I think in two years, there will be a new thing that people will be doing that's not meme coins because meme coins, as they are made today, is not sustainable. Um, I think the big meme coins will survive, but this uh, uh, crazy uh, rotation of meme coin into meme coin, I don't think this will be the thing that people are still doing in two years for that reason. That's my, that's my meme coin thesis. I was thinking about that a lot yesterday. Yeah. I, I generally agree, though. I think these things will have a lot of longevity. I think, I, I, I suspect it's not two years because I think I like, I basically agree with the, the unit economic math there, which is like it net burns people out and it's, it's net extractive. Um, but I think there's a lot more people who have not yet been burned. And so I think like the, the size of the, of the pool of people to come in, to want to play the game, uh, is just so large that, that I, I suspect the meme coin. But this isn't unique to this cycle. I mean, like 2021, like I remember playing, That's like right. I opted That's into right. the game, like Goblin Town NFTs yeah, yeah. or like yeah. Frank Frank NFT. Like that, that's no, right. that was no so different. The point that I'm making is not that there won't be other bubbles. It's that the game will change. The meta will change. Oh, yeah, yeah. It won't be yeah. meme coins anymore, right? Last cycle, it wasn't meme coins. It was meme NFTs, essentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was like all I mean, the no, no, it was still meme coins. It was Shiba. like Sif, yeah. like, what is it, Shiba Moon? Yeah, yeah, Coin. Moon, Look, at the end of the day, no, 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 let's just put it in perspective. Like, in terms of aggregate liquidity, volume, interest, like, meme coins have always been, like, at the center of every every cycle in crypto perhaps after you had like smart contracting platforms that enabled this stuff. But like the way I see it is you like you can invest in maker, which is probably the extreme of boring, not sexy, doesn't move, you know, but, and the other extreme like meme coins and then like NF or, or NFTs that are like really cool, but not as a liquid. And so there's a tax that coming in and out and meme coins sit slightly more closer to NFTs, which is, um, and really financialized, and so it's it's fun. It has like emotional cachet that, but the deep liquidity that like perhaps an NFT is not going to have. So if you're going to buy something, probably it's going to be a meme coin, not necessarily an NFT, because there's like unit bias and like ten thousand collections like tend to be really pricing out a bunch of people in the market. Whereas you're not going to buy Maker because Maker is just the pet rock that doesn't move. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, but I don't think that the operating variable there is liquidity. I think it's volatility. 
meme coins are super volatile. When people buy meme coins, what's their psychology? The answer to my mind is that they're buying lottery tickets. Yep. And they see the mm-hmm. Reddit post, they see the Twitter post, they see whatever, like the friend of a friend of a friend who turned, you know, $1,000 into a million dollars. That is what keeps them playing and buying the next meme coin to think maybe this one is going to be the next Shiba Inu or the next Dogecoin. Um, and that dynamic could very easily move to something else, whatever is the next iteration. And maybe it's something that right now we, we can't quite imagine because maybe it's something we're going to think is so stupid that why would we want to imagine it? Um, that, but that will be the thing that has this crazy volatility and the ups and downs and the, you know, mince the thousand X returns. Uh, and then people will start doing that, even if it has terrible liquidity or if it has super bad slippage, they'll say, whatever, that's not why, I, you know, people are not buying lottery tickets based on their understanding of the payouts and the EV of doing that. Like, they, they have no idea. They, most people don't even check to see how much they're losing the average time they pull a slot machine. Yeah. They just feel it over time through their own churn. Yeah, I do think I, mean, I, I one, one oh, the only thing I would add there. I I generally agree with a lot of that. I I think the because I, I was I was also thinking about this this week is like I think it's turned out to be the case that the saving grace has been that the base units of account of these things, which have been Bitcoin and ETH historically, have appreciated to such a degree that even if you lost a bunch of money on the meme coin side, you you did okay because the the base unit that you held has appreciated so significantly, which kept you in the mm. game, which allowed you to sort of pay the tuition. It's almost like a tuition cost that a lot of people pay. And then they realize the game that they're paying playing. And at some point I worry that that like that cycle can't hold anymore. And that you, you can actually like burn mm. a lot of people who don't realize there's a game that's being played that they're not playing a game. They think they're investing. And that's a, that's a real challenge. Mm. I think I, I see it kind of differently. Well, the, I the, actually, the, the worst, I, the worst game that, well, t- the, uh, the worst game that had was played was Terra. Disguised mm. as a stable yeah. coin. People didn't know the game they were playing. The size of the door stayed the same. The number of people in the room increased by orders of magnitude. When everyone tried to get out, it was a problem. And that, that has burned, and that's probably the biggest hurdle because if you go look at the R Reddit forum, Wall Street Bets, people still talk about that and really burned, which leads us to we need to build a really beautiful consumer applications that are not as destructive, yeah, just yeah. pure casinos to pull in these people in. Hopefully this cycle. Yeah, no, you had a thought? I, I actually like Hasib's framework for this, which is um, you can kind of opt in and, or opt out to these games. It's, it's actually kind of how I like how I think of casinos or like Vegas, basically. Like I'm not a regular of Vegas, but once in a blue moon, I like to go with some friends to Vegas. I'm like, I know I'm going to lose a bunch of money, but I'm going to opt in for the entertainment, basically. And like, that's how I treated, honestly, like the meme NFTs in 2021. That's how I treat like... I was like, I'm not opting into these meme coins. And I saw like something like blur and I'm like, okay, let me, let me get a little like, uh, you know, shots of dopamine in me. Like, let me play this game for a little bit because it's fun. And then I see like some other ones. I'm like, I'm not opting into this just cause I don't have the time or something. And, uh, I don't know. I actually kind of like, it's almost, it's like sports betting or casinos. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I'll probably lose money on this, but like, I don't know. It's kind of tokenized attention and tokenized yeah. fun. And yeah. no, they they definitely play a role, and I think it's it's just entertainment. And I think it's yeah. we shouldn't police how people want to like spend their money in terms of entertainment. Um, it's just that I think that sort of as investors or as people who are trying to build the ecosystem, the only way to make it sustainable is to make sure that there's enough high utility. Like if we ended up in a world where it's 100 percent meme coins, and that's the only thing that happens on Solana yeah. or Ethereum. It's it's over. Like this well, is what, what I think is really bad for the industry is when actually folks maybe in like your guys' seat, like some of the like leading investors or whatever you want to you know kind of title you want to put on you guys. Like there's some venture folks who are like 
people who are deemed by the crypto Twitter to be like the good investors in crypto are pumping these meme coins, then they basically go from entertainment to like retail thinking they're a good investment. Yeah. And that's when people get burned. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Haseeb, man, you came to this episode saying you're tired. Avitual <laughs> <laughs> Avitual just gets me going when we start disagreeing on shit. A couple of Solana but jabs, no, I look, Conti and uh, yeah, I, I, Sol- yeah, actually Solana, Solana really. Solana got you going this time, yeah. Uh, yeah, did it. No, it I, always does. <laughs> yeah, no, I look, I guys, this is I really enjoyed this conversation. I got to run soon, but yeah. uh, Santi, I love your point about Terra, in that the thing that I I got to give respect to meme coins on is that they are honest. And nobody goes into a meme coin thinking that they're making a sound oh, financial to- investment. They know they're playing a game. Oh, I totally and disagree. I'm glad we're ending on a I, disagreement, Haseeb. <laughs> okay, okay, good, good, good. But like, I, I think people who are, I think people who are buying uh, these meme coins, they understand that they're buying lottery tickets because they see the thing happening around them. And people come into casinos and they also understand that they're, you know, they're they're not going to be able to trick the the slot machine, but they might think that they're going to win and they might think they're lucky and. That's okay. That is entertainment. It's the oldest form of entertainment. Human beings have been doing this forever, and even when you make it illegal, they still do it because this is this is just a lot of what drives our psychology. It kind of you can sort of back propagate what makes humans have fun, and the answer is risk. Risk is one of those things for a lot of people, not everybody, but for a lot of people that taps into the deepest form of engagement and excitement. Um, and I think that's okay as long as people know what they're doing. But uh, Tara was not an example of that. And there are many cases where there are basically these kinds of games of games of chicken uh, that are disguised as something else. And I think those are very destructive. And I think Axe Infinity yeah. was one of these. Uh, I think Tarot is one of these. And I think there are, there are others that you know I, I'm sometimes in the habit of calling out. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it, the, 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 my issue with meme coins is not so much that they're uh, bad for the world. I think they're fine as long as you know the people who are buying meme coins or the people who want to buy meme coins. Um, but rather that because, like I said, there 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 aren't repeat players. It's it's a new it's a new guy every day launching the next meme coin. Um, it's better, I think, if you have repeat players, which I I don't know how you would do that, but maybe you know like fan coins or some of these other kinds of things are are more akin to that, um, or uh, no players at all, which is the case for something like Dogecoin or uh, Shiba Inu or some of these more like truly decentralized meme coins that are out there. Yeah, I think that's a good stopping place. I have a feeling. This won't be the last There's a lot of things we, we yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I suspect this episode's also going to be one of the most liked. So if, uh, I, I think there's so many things that we didn't get to cover that it was on my list, like Bitcoin L2s, activity in Bitcoin, you know, and so many other things that I want to get your App thoughts on. Stuff. Always a treat having yeah. you guys on. App chain stuff. IBC, yeah. Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Pleasure. Appreciate you guys. Always. Be well. All right, guys. Take care. Bye. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thank you so much for watching today's episode. Wanted to take a quick second to thank today's title sponsor, Arbitrum. We know you are tired of on-chain experiences that have unaffordable fees and frustrating transaction speeds, and that's why we partnered with Arbitrum. You can experience frictionless trades, lightning speed, and lag-free transactions, all for pennies per transaction. Explore Arbitrum's expanding ecosystem at portal.arbitrum.io. That's portal.arbitrum.io. IO. See you for the next episode. Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code. See you in London.